847 is 366 and 7. Hello and welcome to A Score to Settle, a podcast about movie and TV music. I'm your host, Brian McVicker. Each episode, I focus on music composed for film and television, whether through analyzing a specific score, taking a deep dive into a particular composer's work, or by way of interviews with guests, both those in the industry and also fellow fans. In this episode, my focus is on composer Hans Zimmer, by way of a recurring segment I like to title Listening To, uh, as it will spotlight a specific composer uh, or genre or year, um, figuring out what are the hallmarks, what are the defining features of that uh, notable composer of movie and TV music, sort of a 101 course in college for an analogy. Um, You know, what are the aspects that we can listen for, whether it be certain instruments, uh, musical structure, or maybe just how they approach a project that is unique to them. So... Yes, I'm actually turning my attention uh, to a a current living composer uh, after previous episodes uh, centered on those giants from the past, those who uh, have actually passed away, unfortunately. Um, But Hans Zimmer has been part of the the scoring scene since the the late 80s um, as a solo composer, um, and even a little bit earlier than that. So he's not a new name um, in terms of the, the film music world, but he has achieved that rare distinction for a film composer in becoming a household name right alongside John Williams and Ennio Morricone and Danny Elfman, um, a name known to a great deal of the general audience. Um, someone who has now crossover appeal, um, and has even started selling out live arena concerts of his music. So he's, he's really kind of moved on to a, a rock star status. But even beyond that level of notoriety, um, he, along with Thomas Newman, I think practically reinvented film music in the 90s. Um, and both of their sounds are highly disparate, um, but they, uh, they both came about in, in their, their sounds both came up in, in the 90s and still have influence today. Um, for Zimmer, it was especially for action movies. Um, he, he introduced this hybrid sound of synthesizers and orchestra, uh, emphasizing these propulsive rhythms and these pop-influenced chords, um, high energy, um, and, and, a, and a power anthem, what has sometimes been called a power anthem type of uh, theme. And, uh, he, you know, he wasn't the first composer to... Uh, to hybridize synthesizers and orchestra. There were other composers that did it before, <clears throat> but with his unique background um, in pop music and, uh, and and just kind of that bringing that, uh, those pop influence chords and drums and percussion, and uh, it really just became its own sort of unique sound for action movies. Um, it, it basically became its own sort of adjective. If, if you describe a score as uh, Zimmer-like, same thing as, as describing a score as Elfman-esque um, or, or like Eno Morricone, um, the Zimmer sound, especially for action movies, just really became prevalent um, to the point where, you know, it was the favorite sound. Studios would ask for it. Other composers would need to, you know, uh, imitate it in order to meet the demands of the studio and the director. So it really became prevalent. But it all sort of started with Zimmer, and he's kind of still the one that does it the best. Um, 
but I, I think for those reasons, I really wanted to kind of dive into his music um, and some of his background. So Hans Zimmer was born in 1957 in Frankfurt, Germany. He studied some piano as a child, um, but mostly was self-taught. Um, he eventually joined up with uh, pop bands uh, playing synthesizers, um, and notably, he was in the, uh, the band called The Buggles, uh, who had a big hit uh, with the song Video Killed the Radio Star in 1979. You might have heard it. Uh, it was a real prophetic tune that uh, heralded the upcoming MTV era. Um, and I think it might have, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken, I think it might have been the first video that MTV actually played on air uh, was Video Killed the Radio Star. He uh, also spent time writing ad jingles um, at Air Edel, and uh, eventually British composer Stanley Myers took him under his wing as an apprentice. Uh, Stanley Myers, uh, he had been a staple of the film music industry for a while. Um, mostly, uh, he, he composed a lot of music for uh, British television series, but he also provided music for, um, for a lot of movies such as The Deer Hunter. But in an interview uh, in the magazine Filmscore Monthly back in 1997, uh, Zimmer credits Myers with giving him a break, essentially, and also teaching him how to write for an orchestra. Um, you know, and uh, and eventually they collaborated on a number of scores uh, around the mid '80s. Um, eventually, uh, basically, Zimmer was sort of either arranging cues or orchestrating cues, and then um, Zimmer started receiving co-composer credit um, on certain movies that they did together. And this is all before Zimmer uh, basically struck out on his own in the late '80s. So his first major solo project was a film from 1988 called A World Apart. And its mix of African instruments and vocals and synths uh, is kind of a forerunner to what he composed for um, later movies, The Power of One and the Oscar-winning Lion King, uh, as you can hear in this cue. His music here in A World Apart um, 
led directly to, to Hans Zimmer being hired to score Rain Man, also from 1988, uh, directed by Barry Levinson. Levinson's wife, Diana Rhodes, at the time um, had been so impressed by Zimmer's music on A World Apart that she pushed him to the forefront of other composers considered for Rain Man. What's amazing is how quickly Zimmer found himself catapulted to the A-list uh, with this one movie. Um, Rain Man was a huge hit critically and commercially. Uh, it was Oscar winning for Best Picture and Actor, Director, and Screenplay. And, and Hans Zimmer himself was nominated for his score. Um, in comparison, uh, Danny Elfman, who started his composing career around the same time as Zimmer, didn't receive his first Academy Award nomination until around 1998, uh, when he was nominated for Men in Black and Goodwill Hunting. Um, so it's just, it's fascinating in terms of like, you know, that year that, uh, that Zimmer went out on his own after, you know, co-composing with Stanley Myers and sort of being, you know, a partner with him that striking out on his own, that doing something like this, you know, that movie World Apart, that, that just opened up the floodgates and opened up him to, to being noticed, um, just immediately and getting that right project, uh, with Rain Man and Barry Levinson that was, um, that was so, you know, noticeable critically and commercially just absolutely springboarded him to the top of everybody's list. Um, so here's a bit of Zimmer's main theme from Rain Man. This is arranged and performed by Mark Ayers, uh, which draws on those synth grooves from Zimmer's, uh, pop background. Following Rain Man, the very next year in 1989, uh, the hot streak continued. Uh, Zimmer wound up scoring Driving Miss Daisy um, and again was honored with another Oscar nomination for a movie that was, again, a, a huge hit critically and commercially. Um, and he provided a score um, that was instantly memorable. Um, I think both of these early scores from him, Rain Man and Driving Miss Daisy, um, they really quickly proved his range and his skill at scoring dramas, which I think is uh, an element that gets overlooked a lot uh, when people are examining his career and looking a lot of that, uh, the bigger epics and action pictures. Um, but he, he's got some real skill with those um, smaller uh, dramas and even some of the comedies. Um, he often scores them with exotic instruments um, and, and electronics. Um, but also at times with a small string orchestra, as here in Driving Miss Daisy, and often he seems to highlight solo woodwinds, uh, which is a really nice touch. Um, and as in the case of Driving Miss Daisy, the clarinet takes the center stage. Um, so his theme is immensely catchy, and so you'll hear that here.
what I uh, really love about that theme is that low-end bluesy piano, which really seems to characterize Morgan Freeman's character. And of course, the the blues uh, chords also kind of um, harken to the uh, the South uh, as far as the United States. And then the clarinet has this real sassy quality. It just sort of, you know, that's this quality that sort of characterizes Jessica Tandy in the movie. And so they work really well in contrast and in in conjunction with each other. Um, So it's such a great theme. So that same year, uh, 1989, also found Zimmer uh, begin a recurring collaboration with famed director Ridley Scott. Uh, this is a collaboration uh, stretching to the early 2000s. Um, it hasn't really continued past that point, but it did include a lot of notable movies like Thelma and Louise and Gladiator and Hannibal, um, but it initiated here in Black Rain, uh, starring Michael Douglas and Andy Garcia and Kate Capshaw. So it's a propulsive, uh, it's high energy, it's a percussive score, and um, it has the synthesizers blending into the orchestra uh, in a real organic fashion, often doubling parts, and it really beefs up the sound. Um, but his music for Black Rain really made an immediate impact on the industry and the art form. Um, it was after this point, it was getting temp tracked into all sorts of subsequent action pictures. Um, and very soon, Zimmer's unique sound for an action movie became the template. Um, this became the go to sound for action pictures throughout the 90s whether they were actually scored by Zimmer or not. Um, So here's a bit of a cue uh, from Black Rain called Charlie Loses His Head. So you can hear some of those elements again of that, the percussive element, uh, the high energy, and then the synthesizers, the synths sort of doubling uh, the orchestra. What's also notable about Black Rain is that, along with Rain Man and Driving Miss Daisy, this unofficial triumvirate uh, could be considered the foundational elements, or maybe even the seeds from which evolved much of Zimmer's style and approach throughout his career uh, for various genres. Um, you know, from these seeds, uh, basically, it, you know, they consist of the pop rock influences um, from his time in that genre, um, so those synth grooves. The exotic instrumentation, um, and that also kind of, you know, you hear a little bit in Rain Man, but also, of course, carries back to A World Apart. The small string orchestra uh, with the solo woodwinds. Um, and then uh, lastly, the, the synths uh, augmenting the orchestra um, and that uh, very percussive rhythmic um, style for action movies um, that you heard in Black Rain. So all of these elements, you can kind of see him uh, from that point forward, kind of diverging for the various genres that he tackled throughout the 90s. Um, his his action scoring template really kind of set the stage and really became like the benchmark 
um, for, you know, for the 90s uh, as far as that style. Um, and it was held to a high standard because Zimmer had already kind of proven what he can do with his unique sound. So I wanted to remain on the action track for just a little bit more. Um, as I noted, I think this is one of the uh, or one of Zimmer's lasting impacts to the film scoring art and how it changed its direction uh, starting in the 90s. So director Ron Howard wound up tracking music from Black Rain into his 1991 Fireman epic Backdraft, and he hired Zimmer to provide the score. Um, so Zimmer was still early in his solo career, and he was already hearing his own music being tracked in for other movies. Um, as he uh, he's noted in, in interviews that following um, Backdraft, then its cues were then being tracked into other subsequent movies, such as Crimson Tide uh, in 1995. So it was quickly becoming this new style and sound accompanying the modern action genre. And so he you know, was already sort of, you know, kind of putting his stamp on it. And without even really trying, it wasn't like it was his goal, um, but he, he had already put a stamp on the genre where he was being asked to uh, continue it and others were being asked to mimic it. Uh, so in Backdraft specifically, um, in addition to elaborating on his propulsive, percussive, orchestral synth hybrid action style, he also introduced what had, had since been called uh, the power anthem, doing air quotes here, the power anthem, <laughs> uh, which also became a staple of action movies starting in, in that decade. Um, it borrows sort of big block chords from rock. Um, but performed by an orchestra uh, with synths and drums as well. Um, so it becomes sort of a rock orchestra sound. But I, I think that the start of it was really here in Backdraft. Um, not as much as, not as pronounced with the, a, a, you know, rock orchestra sound as like you might hear in Crimson Tide or The Rock or Broken Arrow. But I think that those, that power anthem sort of action theme really uh, got its start here in Backdrop, which you'll hear um, in this cue uh, called the Fighting 17th. That theme has always been one of my favorites from uh, from Zimmer, and uh, that was actually the first Zimmer score that I bought uh, way back in 1991 as a freshman in college. Uh, that was my the first CD I got from that had Zimmer music on it, and I remember having to borrow my dorm mate's stereo uh, so I could actually make a copy of the CD onto cassette tape so I could actually play it on my own uh, when I wanted to because I didn't have a CD player yet in my dorm room so hey that was life back in 1991 
Um, one funny anecdote about this movie um, that is actually found in the same 1997 interview in Filmscore Monthly that I uh, quoted earlier is uh, Zimmer uh, had made this statement where after seeing the movie Willow in 1988 um, and finding that in his opinion it was way, way overscored. Uh, you know, he, he mentioned that, you know, the music started at frame one and never stopped until the credits ended. Um, but, uh, he said he made a decision to never work with its director. Well, that director was Ron Howard and as of 2018, they've now worked together on six movies. So I always thought that was kind of a funny anecdote. And I think even when that interview happened, he thought it was totally ironic. So to continue on with this thread, I wanted to demonstrate how Zimmer's the, the power anthem approach then developed in 1995's Crimson Tide. So the score for this movie, um, uh, which was produced by Jerry Bruckheimer, uh, it was an early project for the for uh, for Zimmer and in the and the Bruckheimer sort of family. Um, I believe he had actually scored Days of Thunder for the for Bruckheimer before this, um, but it kind of cemented the eventual sound for Jerry Bruckheimer produced projects. It really kind of became the stamp the sonic stamp for his subsequent movies and tv projects whether or not zimmer scored them it's kind of interesting um how that how that came to pass but um here is roll tide from crimson tide um as performed by the city of prague uh philharmonic orchestra so it's not the original soundtrack it's not the original uh the music i heard in the movie but this is a re-recording from the city of prague which is kind of really nice but i wanted you to be able to get that see how the power anthem um sound that i was describing continue to develop um, a few movies after Backdraft, but here is uh, some of Roll Tide from Crimson Tide. you can hear that progression from backdraft to crimson tide as that sound continued to influence action movie scores throughout the 90s and on um is is a shift from traditional orchestral accompaniment into more of that uh orchestral synth or orchestral rock hybrid um so following on from crimson tide um there was also the rock in 1996 um which uh had themes from zimmer and a score from harry gregson williams and then um broken arrow in the same uh, year the peacemaker in 1997 which is one of my favorites um, and many others and zimmer's music continued getting tracked into more other movies so uh his his sound just started to you know permeate uh the action uh, movie genre in that decade um in fact his uh, speaking of broken arrow he has this twangy lazy guitar theme 
for for John Travolta's character in Broken Arrow, which wound up getting used in Scream 2. Um, so Broken Arrow was 96, Scream 2, I believe, was 97 or 98. Um, and uh, they didn't even, like, do their own version. They literally just tracked this cue this uh, that theme for broken arrow into scream 2 which underscores david arquette's sort of bumbling deputy character in that movie so here's a little bit of that uh that twangy guitar theme from broken arrow Now, around this time in the late 90s, something very interesting happened in that Hans Zimmer formed his own music studio um, with the intent of carrying on the example of mentoring that he learned from British composer uh, Stanley Myers uh, back in the early 80s. So this studio was called Media Ventures initially, uh, but it's now named Remote Control. Um, Zimmer had talked about in interviews that he wanted to give younger composers a break into scoring movies and TV as he felt that Stanley Myers had provided him. Uh, and so he wanted to allow younger composers to, um, to intern at the, at the studio, uh, to learn how to orchestrate, to learn how to arrange, eventually to write, uh, you know, to compose a cue or two for a movie that he was working on, and then eventually graduate to their own solo projects. So this was very unusual. No one had really, you know, this this hadn't really been done. It was a little bit like back in the studio system days of, of uh, the golden age of Hollywood and early Hollywood, where there were music departments, and you had a head of the department who could assign composers to certain movies. So this is a little bit of a throwback to that, but it just nothing like it had been around, you know, for such a long time in this kind of to, to provide that mentoring environment. So some of the more notable composers to emerge from remote control in that mentoring environment are John Powell and Harry Gregson Williams, Steve Jablonski and Lauren Balfe. Uh, so this is still the the model today for remote controls. Zimmer still um, runs the this the his the music studio. Um, and you know, in addition to the mentoring environment, um, I kind of equate the compositional approach to sort of a rock band mentality, um, which of course is also part of Zimmer's background, where those members of the band will collaborate and jam together to create a song. Um, and this was starting to be the approach to how their movie music was as well that was coming out of that studio and the composers in that studio. Now, this was a far cry from the traditional film composer model, which, you know, sort of mimicked the concert, the classical concert composer standard of a single person sitting down to author a work from start to finish. Um, there, uh, you know, this is not that mentality as all, as all, you know, at all. This is sort of the 
you know, one person, you know, let's in this in this situation, Zimmer has the themes, and then there's going to be a few other these um, co- other composers coming in and then working those themes in throughout the movie. Whether they do a cue, whether they do an, an interpretation, or they kind of collaborate together on certain cues. Now there was some concern among fellow composers and even just the soundtrack fan community. It was a little inside baseball, um, as it seemed that remote control was becoming the one-stop shop for directors and movie studios. And if they wanted a Zimmer-style score, but Zimmer himself was booked, then one of those composers in training could be hired to provide something similar, uh, which is one of the reasons why many of those 90s action movies begin to sound very similar to, to one another. So as the 90s wrapped up, uh, Zimmer continued to showcase his diversity in many different genres. Um, he tackled uh, dramas such as As Good As It Gets with Jack Nicholson and Thin Red Line, uh, directed by Terrence Malick. Um, thrillers like The Fan and Smell of Sense of Snow. Um, he continued scoring animated movies uh, like The Prince of Egypt and The Road to El Dorado. This is, of course, following along after he had won the Oscar for his score for The Lion King back in 1994. Um and uh but then when you hit the 2000s he really started the 2000s uh with a bang or or maybe i should say with the swing of a sword uh in gladiator uh so gladiator reunited him with director ridley scott um and that's how he kind of started the 2000s although i I do want to back up for a moment um and focus on the thin red line the terrence malick movie it's uh, it was about world war ii um, I just wanted to mention it provided another piece of music uh, from Zimmer that proved immensely popular. Um, it, it's a cue from the movie called Journey to the Line. And uh, after, you know, uh, the movie was out, uh, and of course the album was too, but it got used a lot in movie trailers and it influenced, again, later scores. It has this slowly building string lines and this sad elegiac, uh tone. Um, and it's, it's, I find it's a little, it's modeled a little bit after Samuel Barber's Adagio for Strings, which, uh, was also a big, uh, concert piece that was used in Platoon. Um, so I wanted to play a little bit of that cue here. This is Journey to the Line from The Thin Red Line. So I had mentioned uh, Gladiator um, just a moment ago about how Gladiator in 2000 had brought Zimmer and uh, Ridley Scott back together again. Uh, the last time they collaborated was on Thelma and Louise in 1991. Um, and with Gladiator, Hans Zimmer was able to explore, again, some of his favorite uh, aspects of, of film scoring, one being the exotic instrumentations which he, he brought in. And also he um, added, of course, a large orchestra and synth 
the hybrid that, you know, statements that he'd been um, kind of exploring for the last decade. But also here in Gladiator, he started collaborating with vocalist Lisa Gerard, and he actually collaborated with her twice that year because uh, she also joined him on his score for Mission Impossible 2. Um, but Lisa Gerard is, uh, she was in the, uh, Australian musical group, uh, Dead Can Dance. Um, and, uh, she was able to add her, her voice is, it has a real haunting quality. And so she was able to add that into the score. And, uh, some of the melodies are actually attributed to her. So again, it kind of goes along with that band mentality that I was talking about that Zimmer likes that collaborative sort of, Hey, we're all kind of working together on this score, you know, uh, so bring me your, you know, thematic ideas as well. Um, but this, it's a real evocative and, and oftentimes beautiful uh, musical choice uh, for this one movie. But it's interesting because it unknowingly set another new standard. Um, so following on from this, uh, from Gladiator, this component, this musical component, soon became a staple of film music throughout the rest of the 2000s. Um, in a lot of the soundtrack fan circles, it was referred to as the quote-unquote wailing woman element. Um, but it's interesting um, how much of an effect, you know, Hans Zimmer was having again on the, the art of film scoring through what he was bringing into, into the, you know, into the, his sound. Um, so here's a little bit of that as an example of a cue uh, called Sorrow from Gladiator. And again, the vocal is by Lisa Gerard. So he was also able to continue applying his quote-unquote power anthem approach here in Gladiator and another project subsequently. Um, another one was King Arthur uh, that uh, he scored. Uh, but again, just sort of making the analogy of, of rock band riffs uh, that are sort of performed in an orchestral language. It was just, that's just something that uh, seems to typify how, you know, his his scoring style is for those action movies. Um, and you know, maybe it's just considered more of a quote unquote cool style for movie music, I guess. <laughs> um, so, you know, moving further into the two thousands, there were, there were a couple things that I thought that, that I think were interesting that, that, uh, that changed, uh, other genres, uh, with Zimmer sound. So up until then, you know, Zimmer's action style had mainly been, you know, a component of modern present day set action movies. Um, and then starting with Gladiator, um, with Ridley Scott doing this historical epic, um, it, it kind of opened up the door to uh, allow that, oh, maybe the Zimmer style and sound and approach is applicable for more than just a particular action movie or a modern day set uh, movie. But then following on that, in 2003, uh, there was the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie. 
And then in 2005, he uh, started the collaboration with director Christopher Nolan with Batman Begins. And it's interesting, I find that Pirates of the Caribbean is kind of a fantasy adventure. And then Batman Begins, obviously, the superhero genre, and, and it became one of the most re- you know revered and critically acclaimed and commercially successful um, you know, incarnations of Batman were the three that Christopher Nolan directed, but it, it all of a sudden seemed to have opened up avenues that, Hey, you know, this, his style and approach works in fantasy adventures and superhero genres, which before it had not been, those still had been traditional orchestral accompaniment of the Williams or, um, James Horner or an Alan Silvestri kind of score. And his style of, again, the power anthems and uh, sort of the the rock band riffs performed in an orchestral language style um, hadn't really broached those genres. I just thought it kind of, it really kind of blew the doors off uh, as far as what that sound, the sound could, to, could be uh, utilized in. So I wanted to play an example of uh, his, some of his, his thematic material from the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, which interestingly, in that little footnote about it, in 2003, uh, so Pirates of the Caribbean was a Jerry Bruckheimer production, and interestingly, Alan Silvestri had originally been assigned to score that movie, um, but uh, apparently Bruckheimer wanted to make a change late in the game and have something that uh, sounded more like what he had become known for in his movies and TV shows like we talked about. Um, and so he asked Zimmer, Zimmer was able to provide themes, but he was not able to score the whole movie. So Klaus Bedelt, who was part of his remote control studio, um, scored the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie, but used the themes that Zimmer had, uh, written. Um, Zimmer was assigned to score another movie at that time, The Last Samurai. But uh, he came on, you know, Zimmer came back to score the second, third, and fourth uh, Pirates movies, and then Jeff Zanelli scored the fifth one. So here's the end credits from Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides, which is the fourth film. But it, it's a great, robust, uh, high-energy version of his main theme. So I think the goal there with those movies was to uh, deviate from the example that had been set from pirate movies in the past, uh, specifically by Eric Wolfgang Korngold, and basically kind of rock it up, um, which is exactly why Hans Zimmer's uh, style was uh, exactly what they wanted and exactly fit that style. And it's it's interesting that you know Johnny Depp had talked about how Keith Richards has been Keith Richards was his, his inspiration for the Jack Sparrow character. Um, it really all kind of started to dovetail that it was a, you know, rock and roll version of a pirate movie. 
and the the score just kind of it's orchestral but there's also you know the synth elements and drums um and uh, some other little things that zimmer does like with uh he, he kind of puts a lot of feedback into some of the uh, the recordings but it, it makes it kind of a rock and roll slash orchestral score uh so i always find it fascinating but it's also really highly melodic so there's a lot of neat themes in it but i wanted to kind of um sidebar in terms of speaking of the the thematic material i hadn't really mentioned much about what zimmer's influences were as far as film composers go um he had talked about in interviews how much he loves you know, the music of Ennio Morricone, and he was he feels influenced by Ennio Morricone, uh, Nina Rota, and also Vangelis. Um, and you know, I hadn't really explored much Morricone, um, you know, in my early years of sort of you know collecting and listening. And it's only like in in recent years, and I've gone back to you know check out a lot of Morricone that I'm like getting those influences now sort of retroactively and going back and realizing, oh, I see with this, you know, what Zimmer was going for and that it's sort of like this theme or that melody or is it Morricone's approach to this certain movie? And I can absolutely now see with so much more Morricone knowledge under my belt where Zimmer is actually kind of picking up from that and and, uh, and, and showing you the influences. And one particular thing I wanted to mention was as far as Pirates of the Caribbean in the third movie, um, at World's End, there is a track called Parlay, or a cue from the movie called Parlay, which I always thought was great. It has sort of a slightly Western feel to it. So I realized in going back through and discovering um, Ennio Morricone's score for uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, that it's very similar to a cue there or a theme he has called Man with Harmonica. <laughs> So I wanted to play them back to back so you kind of get the idea of like what Zimmer's influence was. So here's a bit of Man with a Harmonica uh, from Once Upon a Time in the West, uh, composed by Aiden Morricone. So if you kind of keep that uh, theme in your head with that repeating um, ostinato in the background, uh, the, the searing electric guitar notes that are held, and then that really weird echoey harmonica uh, sound, if you, uh, if you kind of hold that in your head and then listen to uh, this cue called Parlay from Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End uh, by Hans Zimmer.
so for me that was such a fun aha moment because when I heard that score uh, when it was released back in 2010, I believe, I had not heard uh, of Morricone's, I had not heard his music for Once Upon a Time in the West. So it was sort of one of those retroactive moments like, oh my gosh, I completely see, you know, it, it's it's those moments in film history when you go back and, and film music history specifically where you uh, dig into the foundational elements, you know, of, uh, of the art form and then you realize who now is drawing upon influences from the past and a lot of people don't it's not always evident you know in terms of even going back to the one of the more famous examples john williams drawing upon film music history drawing upon eric wolfgang korngold you know that style uh you know of old golden age hollywood score for star wars you know and it's just interesting zimmer what really appealed to him from morricone's music is morricone brought a pop sound into his music and it was an, an italian or european pop sound but it made it unique made it idiosyncratic and obviously that really appealed to zimmer and he's still carrying forward with that example today um but I also would uh, would be remiss if I didn't mention around the same time um, Hans Zimmer uh, scored a few films for director Nancy Myers, and one of those films in 2006 was called The Holiday, uh, starring Cameron Diaz and Kate Winslet and Jack Black. What's really, you know, I have to mention it is because Jack Black's character in the movie is a is a film composer, and um, there is a scene in uh, where he and Kate Winslet are going through a blockbuster video store, and he's pulling movies off the shelf and singing and humming the uh, the themes from those movies. And at one point, he pulls uh, Driving Miss Daisy off the shelf, and he sings Hans Zimmer's theme for it. So for me, when I was watching it, it really became a fun meta moment because, you know, Hans Zimmer scoring a movie in which they're talking about him in the movie as a composer, and Jack Black is... Uh, humming one of his themes from another movie. That doesn't really happen that often. But his score for the film proper um, is a, it's a really charming score uh, with a theme that uh, uses acoustic guitars with uh, piano and with um, these really effervescent strings. And they play a melody that uh, almost dances. Uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a really nice uh, uh, winning theme. So continuing on into the 2000s, um, Hans Zimmer continued with projects in all genres. Uh, there were several more animated movies, such as Madagascar and The Simpsons movie. Um, he scored the the Dan Brown uh, Da Vinci Code trilogy, all those directed by uh, Ron Howard, uh, based on that book series. 
Um, and he also continued to collaborate with those in his studio, uh, such as John Powell on Kung Fu Panda 1 and 2, and then also others outside of the studio, the remote control studio, uh, such as James Newton Howard on Batman Beyond and The Dark Knight, the first two chapters in director uh, Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy. Um, and even recently with uh, Benjamin Walfish on Blade Runner 2049. Um, so in these cases, there there's actually a shared co-composer credit on the movie. So that really harkens back to uh, Zimmer's early days, um, back when he uh, you know was starting out and he shared uh, composer credit with his mentor Stanley Myers on movies in the mid-80s. So he's really... Still, you know, likes that model of, uh, you know, mentorship and apprenticeship and uh, sharing credit on, on these movies. And I think it's a way of writing music that he seems to find the most rewarding, I guess, that brainstorming of ideas with another person, that sharing of ideas, that seems to be, you know, what is is the most uh, rewarding aspect of, uh, of writing music for film and television for him. Um, and with something like Kung Fu Panda 2 with John Powell, uh, the results are a really high-spirited adventure score. Um, which, you know, is, is a far cry from, you know, what we would hear, uh, what he did in uh, Gladiator or uh, in, in Crimson Tide, but you can get a feel for that in this cue called Rickshaw Chase. It was really his music for uh, director Christopher Nolan's um, Batman series that uh, really again made waves and set a new standard in film scoring, uh, this time in the superhero genre. Um, I mentioned earlier how uh, big an impact it was when his certain style and uh, sound was applied to a fantasy adventure like Pirates of the Caribbean and then a superhero genre movie like Batman Begins um, in 2003 and 2005 respectively and how it really just kind of blew open what um, studios and directors and, and audiences, uh, what they perceived as sort of a the film score style for those uh, genres, which it just hadn't really been uh, tried before. But what happened with Batman Begins, which he uh, I mentioned earlier, he composed with a uh, uh, composer, James Newton Howard. Um, it uh, it really, again, kind of changed the direction of what a superhero movie could sound like, which, you know, previously had been Williams with Superman and Danny Elfman with Batman, um, still sort of a rich uh, orchestral tradition, sort of a post-romantic symphony, um, and uh, Zimmer brought the uh, you know his synth orchestral hybrid into it. Um, and on Batman Begins in that time in in the two thousands, he was also getting a little more into ambient music, 
um, and his textures of orchestral and synthesizer were starting to blend, you know, so that you couldn't really even tell where one began and one ended. And I think he sort of was experimenting with that sound palette. Um, and he did that a lot on these films. Um, and he was also getting into real conceptual things musically. Um, for example, in Batman Begins, the film and the score open with what sound like the uh, flapping of bat wings, um, which he, you know, did, you know, through electronics. So it was like this idea of sort of musically capturing, um, uh, the, you know, Batman with through this sound of bat wings. So you'll hear that right here at the start. And continuing on with uh, the, the topic of, of him moving into conceptual musical ideas as opposed to more melodic musical ideas, um, in Batman Begins, his Batman theme is really more of a two-note motif, um, this rising horn, uh, this rising brass motif. Uh, it's more kind of a clarion call uh, to action. Um, I also kind of felt it represented musically Batman as just a symbol. So it's not really a long line developed melody. Um, but and in the movie, uh, they talk about Bruce Wayne talks about Batman being a symbol, it doesn't have to be just any, you know, a man. And so I think musically, this sort of represents Batman as just a symbol um, as this rising two note uh, motif. Um, and then beneath that are is this choppy staccato uh, string ostinato, which gives it a lot of, you know, propulsive uh, momentum. But these two qualities kind of wound up, you'll hear echoes of it in uh, subsequent superhero movies. And again, it kind of set a standard in a way that, you know, Elfman's uh, Batman score from 1989 kind of set a standard for a little while there as a gothic orchestral um, film score, uh, you know, staple. And then Zimmer set sort of a new staple uh, through his sound, which again, you'll hear in other superhero movies past Batman Begins. It really to kind of put a stamp on the genre. But here's a little bit of that um, from The Dark Knight from uh, a track called Aggressive uh, Expansion. So continuing on that idea of, of Zimmer doing conceptual musical ideas um, in The Dark Knight, uh, the, the main villain is is the Joker, uh, is played by Heath Ledger. And it's interesting that uh, Zimmer sort of gave him a, a conceptual quality um, through this electric cello uh, motif, which almost is like basically one note, um, but then it sort of becomes dissonant as it sort of, you know, goes through these semitones and it kind of, uh, it, it really starts to become this unnerving sort of uneasy quality that kind of almost like works its way up like the the back of your spine and just becomes kind of this creepy 
um, you know, sound quality for the Joker. So it's not really a theme. It's barely even a motif. But again, it sort of goes to Zimmer thinking of conceptual ways, you know, to to uh, imprint the movie with a sound quality that's unique to that movie. Um, so you get that a, a bit here at the uh, at the start of uh, the track called Why So Serious? Uh, this is from The Dark Knight. I think it's kind of interesting if you think of that one note representing one character representing the Joker as one person um, and how in the movie he as one person brings so much chaos to um, to Gotham City. Um, it's kind of interesting that musically that happens when it just starts as one note and then it just gradually gets more dissonant and uh, like I said un- uneasy and unnerving and then it kind of goes into this nervous kind of uh, energy. And it really kind of nicely uh, musically characterizes the Joker in The Dark Knight. So Zimmer has continued working with Christopher Nolan since Batman Begins in 2005. Uh, they uh, they worked on those three movies together, um, along with composer James Newton Howard on the uh, the first two Batman films, Batman Begins and The Dark Knight. And then Zimmer went solo on The Dark Knight Rises in 2012. Um, but uh, he and, and Christopher Dolan also uh, collaborated on Inception, Interstellar, and Dunkirk. And each of those projects really, uh, Christopher Nolan sort of pushed Zimmer into more challenging sonic areas. Um, and the, the movies became, you know, big, huge commercial hits and critical hits. And they just kept sort of skyrocketing, you know, with, uh, with notoriety in terms of like bringing more attention to Zimmer and his music. So I feel like he's become even more popular since working on uh, the Christopher Nolan movies. And it's really, I think that partnership has become, you know, his primary, you know, partnership in the industry right now as far as his most notable contributions. Um, And so speaking of like those movies that they've worked on outside of the Batman movies, um, his score for Inception was really uh, notable because it wound up making another big impact on film music um, and, you know, the industry as a whole, but not intentionally. So Inception has to do with, you know, the characters that sort of go into uh, these, you know, experts that go into someone's dreams in order to get information out of that person's subconscious. And uh, it's a really trippy movie. It stars Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, Michael Caine, some of these other actors that are in a lot of Christopher Nolan's movies. Um, But they uh, had a particular idea uh, for, um, for the score for Inception. And, uh, it really wound up making a big impact on the sound of film music after that point. So in order to illustrate this uh, sonically, um, I want to play a bit of the trailer. So you'll hear some of the dialogue from the trailer, but I want to hear the trailer, the play some of the trailer because what you get is what some people have called the horn of doom, um, where it's just this big blast of brass. Um, so you'll you'll get that here in the uh, a bit of the trailer uh, from Inception. 
Carl has a job offer he would like to discuss with you. Like okay, a work placement? Not exactly. We create the world of the So now I want to play a little bit of the actual score from the movie. Um, and uh, you can hear how that sort of influenced, you know, what wound up in the in the trailer. Um, and it has these the same sort of heavy crashing brass chords, um, along with these huge bells, um, which sometimes to me, it's it almost seems like it musically represents like the world's largest pendulum swinging inside the world's largest grandfather clock. <laughs> um, so here's a bit of the score from Inception um, in a, a cue called uh, The Dream is Collapsing. To give you some context on both that trailer music and Zimmer's score, it, uh, it's very interesting. There was an interview in Vulture in 2013 um, where they had uh, the, the interviewer had commented about how that sound, specifically from the trailer but also from Zimmer's score, was all over the place. That, that it quickly became prevalent in movie trailers, movie and TV show uh, scores. It was just all over the place. That big blast of brass sort of like i said the horn of doom um and in this interview from 2013 um zimmer sort of gave some context um and said that this was a sound that was actually notated in the script by christopher nolan and what uh what it supposedly represented was a slowed down version of the song la vie en rose um which uh, features heavily in the it's it's a, it features heavily as a story point in the movie um, and he said that, uh, that uh, Zimmer said that he and, and Christopher Nolan sort of on a whim before shooting, they did an impromptu session. Um, and they, they actually scheduled a session in a church, uh, with some brass and a piano, um, basically low notes just resonating against each other in this giant church, all of which after they recorded it, Zimmer sort of manipulated electronically. Um, and it's sort of fascinating that this, that was sort of the origin of the sound, um, in the script. And then that sort of got used in the trailer and then also kind of carried through into the score. But again, it was this conceptual idea of, you know, it's a story point. How do we get up something musical, a musical identity out of that story point? So 
for better or worse, it, it you know, it kind of has become prevalent in Zimmer. I think he's even sort of, he, you know, talks about how he had no idea how it would be all over the place after that point, uh, that you would hear it everywhere. Um, he seemed a little sheepish about it in the interview, but Hey, you know, you can't help, you know, what, uh, what becomes popular. And it's not the intention of the artist to say, well, now I'm going to do something that everyone's going to want to copy. It's like, you do what you need to do for that project. And if it somehow sticks and if it, you know, everyone sort of picks up on it, there's nothing you can do to control it at that point. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so that was definitely, uh, again, the, the score for Inception was another big uh, trendsetter for Zimmer in what has become a career of trendsetting sounds and styles uh, for film scoring. So in recent years, uh, Zimmer has brought that uh, orchestral synth hybrid sound into other superhero movies like Man of Steel and, and Batman v Superman. Um, and he's uh, also tackled, tackled some adventure films like The Lone Ranger um and uh you know he and christopher nolan had another huge success with dunkirk um last year and uh again a big critical and commercial success and brought him another uh, a lot of notoriety for his music for that um which is interesting because i mean it's it's a it's a movie where the score is really prevalent from start to finish um and it remains objective almost the entire length of the movie there's not a point where the music takes a point of view of a character in the movie. It's music that's really just making you feel the sense of time in in, in either of the three uh, sequence, the, the, the three sort of, you know, stories that you're following in the movie. I found it interesting watching it because I kept expecting the, the music at one point to take someone's point of view to kind of emote or to help, you know, um, Sort of, sort of elucidate what that character was feeling, and it never really did um, until at the end when it sort of explodes. So you sort of have this relief, but only at the very end of the movie where it, it there's it gets a bit emotion, uh, get more emotional. But I thought it was a very interesting way to, to score that movie. It gets a it, it like I said, it's a bit it's very objective, so it can be a little bit off putting because you you don't get a window into one of the characters through the music. But it was still a unique way to um, present that story. Um, but I wanted to uh, go back to the uh, the, pre- the previous movie that they did together was Interstellar. I thought Interstellar was a real highlight for Zimmer's career you know, up until this point. Um, it's a beautiful score. Um, it has moments of absolute rapturous beauty. Um, he has the orchestra with a pipe organ. Um, it, there's some ambient textures in it. There's also some of the loneliest um, piano sounds that he has, just these... Um, you know, simple sort of piano chords that accompany these really, you know, vast shots in space, but you have just this, the loneliest feeling with this piano um, as it sort of colors these, you know, our characters just being alone in space, um, such as in, uh, in this cue from Interstellar. Thank you. 
So that was a cue called Message from Home, uh, a real departure from the music that Zimmer had composed for Nolan's previous movies, as you could tell, um, which was their specific intent. They didn't uh, want to continue um, with the soundscapes they had uh, developed, you know, and presented in the three Batman movies and in Inception, you know, continuing with any of those staccato strings and the big brass and the drums. Um, so they, they definitely, you know, uh, purposefully wanted to depart uh, from that. Um, I'd like to play just uh, an, another highlight from Interstellar. Um, uh, part of a cue called Stay. Uh, it showcases some of the so, some of the most gorgeous string writing uh, that Hans Zimmer provided the movie. Um, it's a cue that uh, builds slowly over time. It's kind of playing through a sequence, uh, through a long sequence. It's not trying to match any of the edits. It just kind of keeps playing through. Um, and Zimmer keeps adding in uh, other instruments. He keeps adding in textures. So in some ways, it's it's kind of a, uh, a similar to that cue Journey to the Line uh, from the movie The Thin Red Line, which I had played a little bit earlier. Um, the music is ethereal and beautiful. Um, and then he adds in uh, the pipe organ, uh, which I just mentioned earlier. So this element of the pipe organ not only brings in this massive scope to the cue, uh, which is really appropriate for this, you know, giant, you know, sort of space movie, um, even though it's not a space opera epic kind of thing. Uh, but the, the pipe organ sort of adds in this massive scope, um, but it also can't help but bring in a feeling of religiosity, um, sort of a feeling of sitting in the middle of a cathedral, um, which I kind of find ironic uh, for a movie that's so specifically about science. Um, and, and the application of, uh, of science, of the scientific method, um, and not about faith as much. Um, so also, this the presence of the pipe organ, um, I think, kind of subconsciously connects um, Interstellar to 2001. Um, it's kind of a spiritual... 2001 sort of could be considered the spiritual precursor, in a way, to the movie. Um, and in the main title for 2001, as everybody knows... Um, there's that famous piece uh, by Richard Strauss that they um, that they borrowed uh, called Also Sprach Zarathustra, which is that you know building piece that everybody knows and still gets heard in commercials today, uh, which crescendos on this m- massive pipe organ chord. So you know bringing the pipe organ into the score, you know, kind of works in, in multiple layers. Um, so you can uh, I want to play a little bit of that cue called Stay.
So I want to thank everyone for listening today. I hope it was uh, as fun for you as it was for me to take a deep dive into the music of uh, composer Hans Zimmer, highlighting uh, what I find uh, makes his music unique and memorable and what are some of the hallmarks uh, of his of his music. Um, he really did, you know, make a mark drawing upon uh, his, you know, a, a lot of different elements, his self-taught background um, in electronics and synths, what he learned from his mentor, his love of exotic instruments, uh, the influence of Morricone in terms of uh, film music influences, and then writing for an orchestra kind of in a rock band state of mind, uh, both style and approach. Um, and this has permeated much of film and TV music overall since he arrived on the scene. Um, so even with all of this, I think it can be overlooked um, how diverse his body of work actually is. And when the term Zimmer-esque is applied, what does that actually mean? Is it Crimson Tide? Is it Driving Miss Daisy? Is it Madagascar? Or is it Interstellar? Um, and it's really kind of all of it. Um, you know, much of what he is about is uh, reacting against the status quo, reinventing it and aiming to surprise a willing audience. Music in this episode is from the following films, True Romance, A World Apart, Rain Man, Driving Miss Daisy, Black Rain, Backdraft, Crimson Tide, Broken Arrow, uh, Thin Red Line, Gladiator, Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides, Once Upon a Time in the West by Eno Morricone, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End, The Holiday, Kung Fu Panda 2, Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, Inception, Interstellar, and we're closing out with The Peacemaker. And of course, there was Video Killed the Radio Star by The Buggles, featuring Hans Zimmer. If you'd like to send any comments or questions, you can email the show at escortasettlepodcast at gmail.com. Find the blog at escortasettle.blogspot.com, on Facebook at facebook.com slash escortasettle, and finally on Twitter at score2settlepod, score the number two, settle pod. If you listen to the show by way of iTunes, feel free to leave a rating and a review. That's always appreciated. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.